<sighs> well, how's this thing supposed to start? My name's Aaron. Um, some of y'all might know me by Gimme. Some of y'all may not know me at all, but I think it's really important that we know these books really intimately. So I'm going to have to ask you to check your shelf. What's up, all you beautiful weirdos? We back with episode two. Check your shelf. In this part of the saga, well, in this saga, what am I going to call it? Section? I don't know. The fucking book we're reading is uh, Be Here Now by Baba Ramdas, uh, formerly known as Dr. Richard Alpert. Uh, last week, we kind of dove right into the summary of the book and got through a little bit of the first section, about 50-60%. Uh, we talked about what the book is going to contain in its entirety. We talked about who Dr. Richard Alpert was and his career accomplishments, uh, some of the associates and some of the groundbreaking research they were doing at Harvard um, that had to do with psilocybin, the active compound in magic mushrooms. Um, and we also talked about his desire to kind of further that research and become more attuned to those experiences that he was having. Uh, make sure you go back to, uh, you can go to soundcloud.com backslash check your shelf uh, check hyphen yo hyphen shelf uh, on soundcloud you can find the episode there or you can find it at anchor.fm slash check your show um, actually it might have hyphens in between that one too I can't remember I don't think it does but try everything it'll be in the descriptions if you're even listening who cares this isn't even real <clears throat> this is all fake but we got a little cocktail poured we got the book cracked up and we got our notepad ready. We're going to dive in. Episode 2, we're starting with the section. Coming down. In these few years, we have gotten over the feeling that one experience was going to make you enlightened forever. We saw that it wasn't going to be that simple. And for five years, I dealt with the matter of coming down. The coming down matter is what led me to the next chapter of this drama. Because after six years, I realized that no matter how ingenious my experimental designs were and how high I got, I came down. At one point, I took five people and we locked ourselves in a building for three weeks. And we took 400 micrograms of LSD every four hours. That's 2,400 micrograms of LSD a day. Which sounds fancy, but after your first dose, you build a tolerance. There's a refractory period. We finally were just drinking out of the bottle because it didn't seem to matter anymore. we just stay at a plateau. We were very high. What happened in those three weeks in that house, no one would ever believe, including us. And at the end of the three weeks, we walked out of the house, and within a few days... We came down. It was a terribly frustrating. It was a terrible. Ribbity ribbity already, already hitting them with the. I should have like a frog, uh, croaking effect or something. Like every time I fuck up, you just hear a frog rip rip. Anyway, and it was a terribly frustrating experience, as if you came into the kingdom of heaven 
and you saw how it all was, and you felt these new states of awareness, and then you got cast out again, and after two or three hundred times of this, began to feel an extraordinary kind of depression set in. A very gentle depression that whatever I knew wasn't enough. Hmm. I don't know. I guess the I guess the question is: Was that really the kingdom of heaven, right? Because it is just a glimpse. Like you're not allowed the whole thing. Like that's that's the problem. These are just cheat codes. You know, if you if you just I'm not reading from the book here. If you just if 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 you if you just type in cheat codes the whole time, did you really beat the game? You know. So it's it it does suck, and I and I hate that for him. And of course, the book's gonna progress, but. At this time, it's like, yeah, you're, you came into the kingdom of heaven. You were a visitor. You don't live there. Environmental changes. Now, at the same moment, there were obvious changes going on. Because that checking back over and over again to the inner place inside myself made me less and less attached to reassurance from the environment that I was alright. What is that even? I'm not... This guy writes so crazy, and when you start reading it out loud, it's like, no one talks like this. Now, at the same moment, there were obvious changes going on. Because that, checking back over and over again to the inner place inside myself, made me less and less attached to reassurance from the environment that I was alright. So, I remember the moment when I was thrown out of Harvard. There was a press conference, and all of the reporters looked at me if I was a, as if I was a prize fighter, who had just lost a major fight and was headed for oblivion. You know, that kind of look you have for losers. Real losers. And they stood there looking at me that way. Everybody was looking at me that way, and, and inside I felt, what I'm doing is alright. Everybody, parents, colleagues, public... I saw it as a horrible thing. I thought inside, I must really be crazy now. Because craziness is where everybody agrees about something except you. And yet I felt saner than I had ever felt. I hate that word, saner? Dude, I, come on, more sane, dog. Get it together, professor. I would really hate to spill my drink right there. I wasn't really paying attention as I put it down. I felt saner than I had ever felt. So I knew this was a new kind of craziness or perhaps a new kind of saneness, but the thing was, I always seemed to be able to skirt the line, to keep it together. I didn't ever do anything quite crazy enough. I was the guy that people would come to and say, look, would you calm Tim Leary? He's too far out. If you'll calm him and protect him and so on. And I would say, I'll help him. I'll help him with pleasure. Because he's that great of a human being. Well, that great a being. He doesn't even say human. My bad, I didn't mean to put words in your mouth, dude. And I'd help raise money and run the kitchen and clean the house and raise the children. Well... That's something else I've noticed, actually, too. Um, in Buddhism, a lot of the, even a lot of the, like, traditional texts, the religious texts, they love to, these lists, they love to repeat these little lists. They love to really, um, 
I don't know. What's the? How do you? How do you say it? The way he just listed four things. You know, I'll raise the money, run the kitchen, clean the house, raise the children. They always like to list on about five or six of them, and I always find that really fascinating. Well, we realized then. Well, we realized then that what we needed to do was to create certain kinds of environments which would allow a person, after being into another state of consciousness, to retain a certain kind of environmental support for new ways of looking at himself. After all, if you see yourself as God, and then you come back from this state, and somebody says, hey Sam, empty the garbage, it catches you back into the model of, I'm Sam who empties the garbage. You can't maintain these new kinds of structures. It takes a while to realize that God can empty garbage. Now, in 1962 or 63, Tim and Ralph Metzner with him, Tim and Ralph Metzner with him, I hate these old-timey folks. Grow up. Write more modern. Just kidding. I'm going to be complaining about that a lot because I'm, it's just, I'm, I, I need a scapegoat for how often I fuck up. Tim and Ralph Metzger with him. I was just given author's credit because I took care of the kitchen. What what does that have to do with Ralph Metzger? (sighs) Tim and Ralph Metzger had just come across the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was a very close description of a number of these experiences. This book was at least 2,500 years old. That's 2,500. 2,500. The book was 250 years... 250. God damn, I'm dumb. This book was 2,500 years old at least, and it had been used all those years for preparing Tibetan lamas, which means teacher, uh, for preparing Tibetan lamas to die and to be reincarnated. And when we opened it, we would find descriptions of the 49 days after death before rebirth. And these were perfect descriptions of the sessions that we were having with psychedelics. How could this be? The parallel was so close. Tim rewrote the book as a manual called The Psychedelic Experience, a manual for psychological death and rebirth, arguing that this was really a metaphor about psychological death and rebirth and not necessarily physical death and reincarnation. Tim had gone to India, Ralph had gone to India, Allen Ginsberg had gone to India, See there again. There's another one. Did we really? Did that have to? Did that have to be written out in those three specific sentences? Why couldn't he have just said Tim Ralph and Allen Ginsberg? Like that's just something that happens when you get so like the way that when you get involved into Buddhist culture and scripture, it just they really they do that for some reason. It's got to be a practice of some sort. Fascinating. I checked with everybody when they came back. There was Tim being Tim, and there was Ralph being Ralph, and there was Allen being Allen. And I realized that they had all had lovely experiences and seen a beautiful country and so on. But they were not finished looking for something. And by 1966 and 67, I was in the same predicament. I was aware that I didn't know enough to maintain these states of consciousness. And I was aware that nobody else around me seemed to know enough either. I checked with everybody I might know, and nobody seemed to know. So I wasn't very optimistic about India or psychedelics. By 1967, I had shot my load. How you gonna write so crazy like that and then just you just throw in that crazy ass breast? That's some Freudian shit. I had no more job as a psychologist in a respectable establishment. 
I had no more job because he got fired at a respectable establishment and I realized that we didn't know enough about psychedelics to use them profitably. But at that time, I was still lecturing around the country on psychedelics to such diverse groups as the Food and Drug Administration and the Hells Angels. Then, along came a very lovely guy whom I had guided through some psychedelic sessions, an interesting guy, who had gone to the University of Chicago in his early teens and had taught seminars in Chinese economics. He had started a company called Basic Systems, which had been sold to Xerox, and now he'd retired. He was about 35, retired, he took his $5 million or whatever he made and was now becoming a Buddhist. He wanted to make a journey to the east to look for holy men, and he invited me to go along. He had a Land Rover imported into Heron, into Teheran, and this is my way out. What else was I going to do at this point? So I left to go to India, and I took a bottle of LSD with me with the idea that I'd meet holy men along the way. And I'd give them LSD, and they'd tell me what LSD is. Maybe I'd learn the missing clue. Uh, just for a little side note, just in case, um, LSD, if you haven't already Googled it, is uh, lysergic, acid, lysergic, lysergic dimethyl tryptamine, something like that. I don't know. It's acid. It's the little paper squares or the sugar cubes or the, the liquid vials that you see in uh, a lot of movies probably what dazed and confused and fucking fear and loathing and a bunch of party movies it's usually very badly represented in mainstream media um there's a couple really good trips um physically represented like visually um i remember into the void uh, being a really good one um if you want to check out what they might look like actually i think that one might be dmt am i tripping i can't remember my memory is really really bad y'all I apologize for that. So maybe he'd learn some. Maybe he'd learn the missing clue. So that's what he wants. We started out from Tehran, and for the next three months, we had lovely guides and a most beautiful time. We scored great hashish in Afghanistan, and at the end of three months, I had seen the inside of the Land Rover. Uh oh, you know what that means. It's time, it's time for the time Daily Dab. That boy that mentioned boy hashish. hashish. That means that we gotta means smoke. smoke. I already got I already the nail heated, heated up. up. Off cam. Let's go, Let's man. Go, man. It's, cooled it's cooled up. up. Ready, Ready to go. go. You know, it might be better to just bite a joint, but... Oh. Jesus, man. Enough of that bullshit. Appreciate you, Snoop. Dre, love y'all, man. Back to the bullshit. We're gonna start over the top of that paragraph. Do you feel like I need to talk to you like you're reading along? Do you think anybody's going to read along? And if they do, do you think they need guidance, especially from me? We started out from Tehran, and for the next three months we had lovely guides, and a most beautiful time. 
We scored great hashish in Afghanistan, and at the end of the three months, I had seen the inside of the Land Rover. I had 1,300 slides, many tape recordings of Indian music. I had drunk much bottled water, eaten many canned goods. I was a Westerner traveling India. That's what was happening to me when, we, when I got to Nepal. That's what was happening to me when I got to Nepal. Such a worthless sentence. I understand it's all for like, not show, but like it's all for tone. But, um, I don't know. Superfluous language bugs me sometimes if it's not done really well, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I'm being picky. No one cares what you like. Get back to it. God damn it, Aaron. Also, don't say GD so much probably, huh? Anyway. We had done it all. We had gone to see the Dalai Lama. See, Lama there again means teacher. We had gone to see the Dalai Lama. And we had gone on horseback up to Amanath Cave up in Kashmir. We had, we had visited Benares, Benares. And finally we ended up in Kathmandu, Nepal. I started to get extremely, extremely depressed. I'm sure part of it was due to the hashish, but also part of it was because I didn't see what to do next. I had done everything I had thought to do. I had done everything I thought I could do. And nothing new had happened. It was turning out to be just another trip. The despair got very heavy. We didn't know enough and I couldn't figure out how to socialize this thing about the new state of consciousness. The new states of consciousness. And I didn't know what to do next. It wasn't like I didn't have LSD. I had plenty of LSD, but why take it? I knew what it was going to do, what it was going to tell me. It was going to show me that garden again and... Then I was going to be cast out, and that was it. I never could quite stay. I was addicted to the experience at first, and then I even got tired of that. And the despair was extremely intense at that point. We were sitting in a hippie restaurant called the Blue Tibetan, and I was talking to some French hippies. I had given LSD to a number of pundits around India and some reasonably pure men, an old Buddhist Lama said, it gave me a headache. Somebody else said, it's good, but not as good as meditation. Somebody else said, where can I get some more? And I got the same range of responses that I would get in America. I didn't get any great pearl of wisdom, which would make me exclaim, oh, that's what it is. I was waiting for something that was just going to do that thing. So I finally figured, well, it's not going to happen. We were about to go on to Japan, and I was pretty depressed because we were starting the return now, and what was I returning to? What should I do now? I decided I was going to come back and become a chauffeur. I wanted to be a servant and let somebody else program my consciousness. I could read holy books while I'd wait for whoever it was I was waiting for while they were at Bergdorf Goodman's, and... I'd just changed my whole style of life around. I could just get out of the whole drama of having to engineer my own ship for a while. This is a funny foreshadowing as you'll see. The despair was extremely intense at this point. I was really, really quite sad. Bhagwan I was in the blue Tibetan with my friend and these other people and in walked in this very extraordinary guy 
at least extraordinary with regard to his height. He was 6'7", and he had long blonde hair and a long blonde beard. He was a Westerner, an American, and he was wearing holy clothes, a dhoti, a cloth Indian men wear instead of pants, and so on. And when he entered, he came directly over to our table and sat down. Now, up until then, I had found this interesting thing that I don't think I could have labeled until that moment. Once, when I had met Geisha Wangyal at Freehold, New Jersey, I knew I was meeting a being who, quote-unquote, knew. But I couldn't get to it because I wasn't ready somehow. We were very close. We loved each other extraordinarily, but I hadn't been able to really absorb whatever I needed to absorb. Now, here was this young fellow, and again, I had the feeling I had met somebody who knew. I don't know how to describe this to you, except that I was deep in my despair. I had gone through game after game after game, first being a professor at Harvard, then being a psychedelic spokesman, and still people were constantly looking into my eyes like, do you know? Just that, that subtle little look, and I was constantly looking into their eyes, do you know? And there we were. And there was always that feeling that everybody was very close, and we all knew what we knew, but nobody quite knew. I don't know how to describe it other than that. And I met this guy, and there was no doubt in my mind, it was just like meeting a rock. Not The Rock, <clears throat> not Dwayne Johnson. It was just like meeting a rock, it was just solid, all the way through. Everywhere I pressed, there he was. We were staying in a hotel owned by the king or the prince or something because we were going first class. So we sprinted this fellow up to our suite in the Suwalti Hotel, and for five days we had a continuing seminar. We had this extraordinarily beautiful Indian sculptor, Harish Johari, who was our guide and our friend. Harish, this fellow Bhagwan Das, and David and I sat there for five days, high on peach melbas and hashish and mescaline. We had a seminar with Alexandra David Neal's books and Sir John Woodruff's Serpent Power and so on. At the end of the five days, I was still absolutely staggered by this guy. He had started to teach me some mantras and working with beads. When it came time to leave to go to Japan, I had the choice of going on to Japan on my first class route or going off with this guy back to India on a temple pilgrimage. He had no money and I had no money and it was going to change my style of life considerably. I thought, well look, I came to India to find something and I still think this guy knows. I'm gonna follow him. But there was also the counter thought. How absurd, who's writing this bizarre script? Here I am, I've come a halfway across the world and I'm going to follow through India, a 23-year-old guy from Laguna Beach, California. I said to Harish and to David, 
Do you think I'm making a mistake? And Harish said, no, he's a very high guy. And I started to follow him. Literally follow him. Now, I'm suddenly barefoot, and he said, you're not going to wear shoes, are you? You know, that sort of thing. And I've got a shoulder bag and my dhoti, and blisters on my feet, and dysentery, and the likes of which you can't imagine. And all he says is, well, fast for a few days. He's very compassionate, but no pity. And we're sleeping on the ground or on these wooden tables that you get when you stop at monastery, and my hip bones ache. I go through an extraordinary physical breakdown. I become very childlike, and he takes care of me. We start to travel through temples, to Baneshwar and to Konarak and so on. I see that he's very powerful, so extraordinarily powerful. He's got an ektara, a one-stringed instrument, and I've got a little Tibetan drum. And we go around to villages, and people rush out and they touch our feet because we're holy men. Which is embarrassing to me because I'm not a holy man. I'm obviously who I am, a sort of overage hippie, western explorer, and I feel very embarrassed when they do that, and they give us food, and... He plays and sings, and the Hindu people love him and revere him, and, and he's giving away all my money. Which is funny, because like six paragraphs ago, he said he had no money. Get your story straight, baba! <clears throat> but I'm clinging tight to my passport and my return ticket to America, and a traveler's check that I'll need to get me to Delhi. Those things I'm going to hold on to and my bottle of LSD in case I should find something interesting. That's kind of how I feel about acid these days too. I've got a bunch of it, but I just don't feel the need to just take it recklessly anymore. It's always like when we're going out to do something really fun that would lend itself to a nice, like awesome experience. So I don't know, whatever that means, whatever that, take that for what it's worth. <clears throat> Alright, word I hate losing my place. I need to start fucking fingering every line. Oh yeah. And during these travels, he's starting to train me in such an interesting way. We'd be sitting somewhere, and I would say, Did I ever tell you about the time that Tim and I and he would say, Don't think about the past, just be here now. Silence. And I'd say how long do you think we're going to be on this trip? And he'd say, Don't think about the future. Just be here now. And I would say, You know, I feel really crummy. My hips are hurting. Ah, emotions are like waves. Watch them disappear in the distance on the vast, calm ocean. He had just sort of wiped out my whole game. That was it. That was my whole trip. Emotions past experiences and future plans I was after all a great storyteller so we were silent there was nothing to say he'd say you eat this or now you sleep here and all the rest of the time we sang holy songs that's all there was to do or he would teach me asanas hatha yoga postures but there was no conversation. I didn't know anything about his life. He didn't know anything about my life. 
He wasn't the least bit interested in all the extraordinary dramas that I had collected. He was the first person I couldn't seduce into being interested in all this. He just didn't care. And yet, I never felt so profound and I never felt so profound an in intimacy with another being. It was as if he were inside of my heart. And what started to blow my mind was that everywhere he went, we went, <clears throat> everywhere we went, he was at home. If we went to a Theravadan Buddhist, Buddhist monastery, he would be welcomed. And suddenly he would be called Dharmasara, a southern Buddhist name. In some piece of, some, in some piece of clothing he wore, I saw was also worn by all the other monks. And I realized he was an, in, he was, he was an initiate. I thought I said intimate. I realized that he was an initiate in that scene and they would welcome him and he'd be in the inner temple and he knew all the chants and he was doing all of them. We'd come across some Shavites, followers of Shiva, or some Swamis, and I'd suddenly realize that he was one of them. On his forehead would be the appropriate talik or mark, and he would be doing all of their chanting. We'd meet Kargyupa Lamas from Tibet, and they would all welcome him as a brother, and he just knew all of their stuff. He had been in India for five years, and he was so high that everybody just welcomed him, feeling he's obviously one of us. I couldn't figure out what his scene was. All I personally felt was this tremendous pull towards Buddhism because Hinduism always seemed a little gosh. The paintings were a little too gross, the colors were bizarre, and the whole thing was a little too melodramatic and there's too much emotion. I was pulling towards that clean, crystal clear simplicity of the Southern Buddhists or the Zen Buddhists. After about three months, I had a visa problem. Sorry, I'm crossing my legs. I'm sure my fucking... I'm going to start that paragraph over in case that sounded like trash. If not, it might be funny. <laughs> After about three months, I had a visa problem and we went to Delhi. You went to Delhi? What'd you get? The turkey? Is it halal? <laughs> I went to... We went to Delhi. And I was still quite unsure of my new role as a holy man. And so when I got to Delhi, I took $4 out of my little traveler's check. And I bought a pair of pants and a shirt and a tie. And I took my horn-rimmed horn glasses out of my shoulder bag and stuck them back on. And I became Dr. Albert. I became again Dr. Albert. To go to the visa office. Dr. Albert, who had a grant from the Folk Art Museum of New Mexico for collecting musical instruments, and I did my whole thing. I kept my beads in my pocket because I didn't feel valid in this other role. And then the minute I got my visa fixed, he had to have his annual visa worked over, and he had to go to a town nearby, which we went to, and we were welcomed at this big estate and given a holy man's house and food brought to us, and he said, you sit here. I'm going to go see about my visa. He told me just what to do. I was like a baby. Eat this. Sit here. Do this. And I just gave up. He knew. He spoke Hindi fluently. My Hindi was very faltering, so he could handle it all. We had spent a few weeks in a Chinese Buddhist monastery in Sarnath. Sarnath? Sarnath? Sarnath! which was extraordinarily powerful and beautiful, and something was happening to me, but I couldn't grasp the total nature of it all. There was a strange thing about him. At night, he didn't seem to sleep like I did. 
That is, any time I would wake up at night, I'd look over and he would be sitting in the lotus position. And sometimes, I'd make believe that I was asleep, and then open sort of a half eye to see he to, to make sure he wasn't cheating. Maybe he was sleeping now, but he was just always in the lotus posture. Sometimes I'd see him lie down, but I would say that 80% of the time, when I would be sleeping heavily, he would be sitting in some state or other, which he would never describe to me. But he was not in personal contact. I mean, there was no wave or moving around. Nothing seemed to happen to him. That night at that estate, I went out. I had to go to the bathroom and I went under the stars and the following event happened. The previous January 20th at Boston, in the pier at Boston, is that how they talked in the 60s or like in the 40s when this dude was raised? At Boston, in the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, my mother had died of a spleen illness. The bone marrow stopped producing blood and the spleen took over, grew very large, they removed it and then she died. It had been a long illness and I had been with her through the week prior to her death and through it we had become extremely close. We had transcended mother-child and personalities and we had come into true contact. I spent days in the hospital just meditating, and I felt no loss when she died. Instead, there was a tremendous continuing contact with her. And in fact, when I had been in Nepal, I had had a vision of her one night, when I was going to bed. I saw her up on the ceiling, and I was wondering whether to go to India or to go on to Japan. And she had a look that was the look of, you damn fool! You're always getting into hot water, but go ahead, and I think that's great. I don't know, should I have not done the voice? It seems regrettable. I could just delete it, but... She looked peeved slash pleased. It was like there were two beings in my mother. She was a middle-class woman from Boston who wanted me to be absolutely under... who wanted me to be absolutely responsible in the most culturally acceptable fashion. And then... There was this swinger underneath, this spiritual being underneath who said, Go, baby. And I felt these two beings in that look, which supported my going back to India. This night, I'm under the stars, and I hadn't thought about her at all since that time. I'm under the stars, urinating, and I look up, and the stars are very close because it's very dark. And I suddenly experience a presence of mother, and I'm thinking about her. Not about how she died or anything about that, I just feel her presence. It's very, very powerful, and I feel great love for her. And then I go back to bed. Of course, Bhagwan Das is not the least interested in any of my life, so he'd be the last person I would talk to about my thoughts or visions. The next morning, he says, We've got to go to the mountains. I've got a visa problem. We've got to go see my guru. Now, the term guru had meant for me in the West a sort of high-grade teacher. There was a Life article about Allen Ginsberg. Guru goes to Kansas. What? Oh, okay, it's an article, okay. <clears throat> there was a Life article about Allen Ginsberg. Guru goes to Kansas is the name of the article. 
And Alan was embarrassed and said, I'm not really a guru, and, he, and I didn't really know what a guru was anymore. Bhagwan Das also said we were going to borrow the Land Rover, which had been left which had been left with this sculptor to go with the mountains. Is Alan Ginsberg a sculptor? Who is this sculptor? Am I supposed to know this sculptor? And I said, I didn't want to borrow the Land Rover. I had just gotten out of that horrible blue box, and I didn't want to get back into it. I didn't want the responsibility. David had left it with this Indian sculptor, and he wouldn't want to loan it to us anyway. I got very sulky. I didn't want to go see a guru. And suddenly I wanted to go back to America in the worst way. I thought, what am I doing? I'm following this kid and all he is. But he says, we've got to do this. And so we go to the town where the sculptor lives and within half an hour, the sculptor says, you have to go see your guru? Take the Land Rover. Well, that's interesting. We're in the Land Rover and he won't let me drive. So I'm sitting there sulking. He won't let me drive and we're in the Land Rover, which I don't want to have. And now I'm really in a bad mood. I've stopped smoking hashish a few days before because I'm having all kinds of reactions to it. <clears throat> and so I'm just in a very, very uptight, negative, paranoid state. And all I want to do is go back to America and suddenly I'm following this young kid who wants to drive. And all he wanted me for was to get the Land Rover. And now the whole paranoid con world fills my head. I'm full of it. We go about 80 or 100 miles and we come to a tiny temple by the side of the road in the foothills of the Himalayas. Now think about this. <clears throat> this is before GPS. This is before MapQuest. This is before cell phones. This dude knew how to drive a hundred miles to a specific temple from where he was. That's pretty crazy to me. We're stopping and I think we're stopping because a truck's coming by. But when we stop, people surround the car, which they generally do, but they welcome him and he jumps out. And I can tell something's going to happen because as we go up into the hills, he's starting to cry. We're singing songs and tears are streaming down his face. And I know something's going on, but I don't know what. We stop at this temple and he asks where the guru is and they point up on a hill and he goes running up this hill, and they're all following him, so delighted to see him. They all love him so much. I get out of the car, and now I'm additionally bugged because everybody's ignoring me. And I'm following him, and he's way ahead of me, and I'm running after him barefoot up this rocky path, and I'm stumbling. By now, my feet are very tough, but still his legs are very long. And I'm running, and people are ignoring me, and I'm very bugged, and I don't want to see the guru anyway, but what the hell? We go around this hill so that we come to find a field which does not face on the road. It's facing into a valley and there's a little man in his 60s or 70s sitting with a blanket around him. And around him there are eight or nine Hindu people and it's a beautiful tableau. Clouds, beautiful green valley, lovely, lovely place. The foothills of the Himalayas. And this fellow, Bhagwan Das, comes up runs to this man and throws himself on the ground, full face, doing Dunda Pranam. He's stretched out. I think that's a yoga pose, you know, the one where you're you're sitting on your knees, your butt and your butt's on your on your uh, like heels and your face down. He's stretched out so his face is on the ground full length and his hands are touching the feet of this man who is sitting cross legged and he's crying. And the man is patting him on the head and I don't know what is happening. Now this is the 
the Westerner guy we're talking about here, Bhagwan Das, uh, the blonde-headed, six-foot-seven giant. I'm standing on the side and thinking, I'm not going to touch his feet. I don't have to. I'm not required to do that. And every now and then, this man looks up to me and he twinkles a little. But I'm so uptight that I couldn't care less. Twinkle away, man. Then he looks up at me. He speaks in Hindi, of which I understand maybe half. But there's a fellow who's translating all the time who hangs out with him. And the guru says to Bhagwan Das, You have a picture of me. Bhagwan Das nods, yes. Give it to him, says the man, pointing at me. That's very nice, I think, giving me a picture of himself. And I smile and nod appreciatively. But I'm still not going to touch his feet. He says, You came in a big car? Of course, that's the one thing I'm really uptight about. Yeah. So he looks at me and smiles and says, You give it to me? I started to say, What? What? And Bhagwan Das, Bhagwan, Bhagwan Das looks up and says, Looks up. He's lying there. And he says, Maharaji, meaning great king. If you want it, you can have it. It's yours. And I said, No, now, wait a minute. You can't give away David's car like that. This isn't our car. And this old man is laughing. In fact, everyone is laughing except me. Then he says, You made much money in America? Ah, at last he's flooding my ego, I think. So I flick through all my years as a professor and my years as a smuggler and all my different dramas in my mind. And I said, Yeah. Well, how much did you make? Well... I said at one time what this isn't even a fucking quote what are you talking about well I said at one time and I sort of upped the figure a bit you know my ego $25,000 everybody was terribly awed by this figure which was complete bragging on my part it was phony I never made $25,000 and he laughed again and he said you'll buy a car like that for me and I remember what went through my mind I had come out of a family of fundraisers for the United Jewish Appeal, Brandeis, and then Einstein Medical School. And I had never seen hustling like this. He doesn't even know my name and he already wants a $7,000 vehicle. Imagine buying a Land Rover for $7,000. <clears throat> and I said, well maybe. The whole thing was freaking me so much, freaking me out so much I guess. And he said, take them away and give them food. So we were taken and given food, magnificent food. We were together still and sadhus brought us beautiful food and we were told to rest. Sometime later we were back with the Maharaji and he said to me, come here, sit. So I sat down and he looked at me and said, you were out under the stars last night. Mm-hmm. You were thinking about your mother? Yes. Wow, I thought that's pretty good. <laughs> I never mentioned that to anybody. She died last year. Um, mm-hmm. She got very big in the stomach before she died. A long pause. Yes. He leaned back, closed his eyes, and said... Spleen. 
she died of spleen. Well, what happened to me at that moment I can't really put into words. He looked at me in a certain way at that moment, and two things happened. It seemed simultaneous. They do not seem like cause and effect. The first thing that happened was that my mind raced faster and faster to try to get leverage. To get on hold, to get a hold on what he had just done. I went through every super CIA paranoia I've ever had. Who is he? Who does he represent? Where's the button he pushes? Where the file appears? And why have they brought me here? None of it would gel. It was just too impossible. It was too impossible that this could have happened this way. The guy I was with didn't know all that stuff. And I was a tourist in a car. And the whole thing was just too far out. My mind went faster and faster. Up until then, I had two categories for psychic experience. One was, they happened to somebody else, and they haven't happened to me, and they were terribly interesting, and we certainly had to keep an open mind about it. That was my social science approach. The other one was, well, man, I'm high on LSD. Who knows how it really is? After all, under the influence of a chemical, how do I know I'm not creating the whole thing? Because in fact, I had taken certain chemicals where I experienced the creation of total realities. The greatest example I have of this came, came about through a drug called JB318. Gotta remember to Google that one. Gotta remember to Google that drug. Hey bro, let me get some of that JB. JB318, which I uh, took in a room in Millbrook. I was sitting on the third floor and it seemed like nothing was happening at all and into the room walked a girl from the community with a pitcher of lemonade and she said would I like some lemonade and I said that would be great and she poured the lemonade and she poured it and she kept pouring and the lemonade went over the side of the glass and fell to the floor and it went across the floor and up the wall and over the ceiling and down the wall and under my pants which got wet and then it came back up to the glass and when it touched the glass the glass disappeared and the lemonade disappeared and the wetness in my pants disappeared and the girl disappeared and I turned around to Ralph Metzner and I said Ralph the most extraordinary thing just happened to me and Ralph disappeared I was afraid to do anything but just sit Whatever this is, it's not nothing. Just sit. Don't move. Just sit. So I'd had experiences where I had seen myself completely create whole environments under psychedelics. And therefore, I wasn't eager to interpret these things very quickly. Because I, the observer, was at those times under the influence of psychedelics. But neither of those categories applied in this situation. And my mind went faster and faster... And then I felt like what happens when a computer is fed an insoluble problem. The bell rings, and the red light goes on, and the machine stops. And my mind just gave up. It burned out its circuitry. It's zeal to have an explanation. I needed something to get closure at the rational level, and there just wasn't anything. There wasn't a place I could hide in my head about this. And at the same moment, I felt this extremely violent pain in my chest and a tremendous retching feeling, and I started to cry. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried. And I wasn't happy, and I wasn't sad. It wasn't that kind of crying. The only thing I could say was it felt like I was home. Like this journey was over. 
like I had finished. Well, I cried and they finally sort of spooned me up and took me to the home of devotee Kekesa to stay overnight. That night I was very confused. A great feeling of lightness and confusion. I mean, that's got to be some really fucking... That's got to be some far out shit, man. Imagine feeling like... that. That's, that's some real like mind reading shit. Like that's... I mean... I'm skeptic. I'm, I'm skeptical for sure, but like I have no reason not to believe this. It's not like it doesn't lend credibility to his argument about anything. Like I don't I don't know what he would get from lying about that, but I don't know, maybe I'm a gullible. At one point in the evening, I was looking in my shoulder bag and came across the bottle of LSD. Wow, I finally got a guy who's going to know. He'll definitely know what LSD is. I'll have to ask him. That's what I'll do. I'll ask him. Then I forgot about it. The next morning at 8 o'clock, a messenger comes. Maharaji wants to see you immediately. We went in the Land Rover, the three miles to the temple. When I'm approaching him, he yells out at me. Have you got a question? And he's very impatient with all this nonsense. And he says, where is the medicine? I got a translation of this. He said, medicine. I said, medicine? I never thought of LSD to be medicine. And somebody said, he must mean the LSD. LSD? He said, acha, acha. I'm imagining him doing like a karate chop. Bring the LSD. So I went to the car and I got the little bottle of LSD and I came back. Let me see. So I poured it, in my, out, poured it out in my hand. What's that? That's STP. That's Liberium. That's a little of everything. A little sort of traveling kit. He says, gives you cities. I had never heard the word city before. I'm sure I'm butchering a lot of these fucking Indian terms. So I asked for a translation and Sidhi was translated as power. From where I was, from where I was at in relation to these concepts, I thought he was like a little old man asking for power. Perhaps he was losing his vitality, vitality and wanted a vitamin B12. That was one thing I didn't have, and I felt terribly apologetic, because I would have given him anything. If he wanted the Land Rover, he could have it. And I said, oh no, I'm sorry. I felt really bad I didn't have any and put it back in the bottle. He looked at me and extended his hand. So I put into his hand what was called a white lightning. This is an LSD pill. And this one was from a special batch that had been made specifically for me for traveling. Each pill was 305 micrograms and very pure. So 305 micrograms is a lot. I think the average dose these day, average dose these days is 100. So if you're if you're brand new and you're you're getting a bunch of tabs from the street, you know, one or two is all you'll need and that's still going to be way less than 305 usually. Most tabs are dosed at like price 75 if I had to guess, maybe 60. Um each pill is 305 micrograms and very pure, very good acid. Usually you start a man over 60, maybe with 50 to 75, very gently so you won't upset him. 300 of pure acid is a very solid dose. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think I'm, I think 300 is pretty like, like, like very, very solid. Like He looks at the pill and extends his hand further, so I put a second pill, that's 610, then a third pill, that's 915, into his palm. And that is a sizable first dose for anyone. Acha! And he swallows them. I see them go down. There's no doubt 
And that little scientist in me says, this is going to be very interesting. All day long, I'm there. And every now and then, he twinkles at me. And nothing. Nothing happens. That was his answer to my question. Now you have the data that I have. <sighs> boy, oh boy. Baba Ram Das, Bhagwan Das, Maharaji. Met a lot of cool characters in this episode. Um, I gotta say, man, this is feeling like a really rewarding experience. I like reading it out loud. Um, going back and listening to my own voice as I'm editing it, editing, 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 as I'm editing certain parts is, um, it's a fun creation experience. Um, it's really, um, a unique way to keep me present and mindful of the moment, which is something that I've dedicated a good decade of my life towards. And, um, yeah, man, I'm having a lot of fun doing this and I hope it's not, uh, terribly boring to you. I know a lot of us don't like to read these days, so let me do the hard work. All you got to do is listen along while you're at your stupid little job. So let me go ahead and edit this mother he mother hacker and that way I can get some sleep so I can go back to my stupid job tomorrow. But I love you.